Hello and welcome to the commentary for Lesson 368, Hosea chapters 7 and 8. So the first section we're talking about Israel's love for wickedness. Verse 2 says, It's people don't realize that I am watching them. Their sinful deeds are all around them and I see them all. That's a little disconcerting, but we know that God can see all the goings on. Um, I don't believe he watches everything with the intent to, you know, like we talk about, zap us with a lightning bolt. I don't think he's looking for us to mess up so that he can punish us. But he does know everything that goes on. Nothing surprises him. Um, But he does get jealous and he does get angry. And so here we see that Israel has turned from God in a big way. They've put their faith in other things. Um... When they found themselves in trouble, they went to Egypt for help, and then they went to Assyria for help. We saw that in verse 11. I mean, we knew that before, but verse 11 restates that truth. The people of Israel have become like silly, witless doves, first calling to Egypt, then flying to Assyria for help. Back up a little bit in verse 7, it says... They kill their kings one after another, and no one cries to me for help. That sounds like it's gotten to a really bad place, doesn't it? Verse 10, their arrogance testifies against them, yet they don't return to the Lord their God or even try to find him. So they're at a point where their sins have reached critical mass, and they don't even realize it. They're not even seeking him. They're not crying out to him. They finally do, we see in chapter 8, but by then it's too late. Chapter 8, verse 2 says, Now Israel pleads with me, help us, for you are our God, but it is too late. Now we say God is very patient, and he is very merciful, and he He warns us again and again, and he wants us to come to him. He wants us, when we get in these crisis situations, he wants us to seek him. But at some point, it is too late. He tries to shake us. He tries to get us to realize. He tries to warn us. But if we're not hearing it and we're not turning to him, at some point, he will hear he punishes the Israelites. But for us today, at some point, he will just turn. We don't want him? Fine. We don't get him. Um, Verse 13, if we back up to chapter 7, verse 13 says, What sorrow awaits those who have deserted me? I wanted to redeem them. Verse 14, they do not cry out to me with sincere hearts. Instead, they sit on their couches and wail. They cut themselves, begging foreign gods for grain and new wine, and they turn away from me. Now, did that? Did you catch on to that they cut themselves thing? Um, we've talked about this before in our studies, but I want to reiterate this, okay? Cutting yourselves, that's a big problem, especially with young girls today. I help out at the House of Hope, and that's a problem that they see more now than they have in the past. Um, recently that's become a crutch for young girls that are struggling mostly with anxiety and depression. But I want to go back to the reason that the Bible addresses this cutting themselves is because it's part of a pagan worship practice to Baal. Okay, if we go back to 1 Kings chapter 18 verses 24 through 29, 
um, I'll start out by reminding you of the contest on Mount Carmel. Remember, I don't know if it's Carmel or Carmel, so forgive me if I mispronounce that, but remember when Elijah was having this contest on Mount Carmel and they had two offerings and he said, okay, whoever, I will cry out to my God, you pray to your God, your false God, of course, and whichever God consumes the altar, the sacrifice with fire wins. And we know that the result was unmistakable power from the one true God. So they took him on. They said, okay, yeah, let's have this contest. And so I'm going to pick up there in verse 24 and read to you what happens. Then call on the name of your God, and I will call on the name of the Lord. The God who answers by setting fire to the wood is the true God. And all the people agreed. Then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, You go first, for there are many of you. Choose one of the bowls and prepare it, and call on the name of your God. But do not set fire to the wood. So they prepared one of the bowls and placed it on the altar. Then they called on the name of Baal from morning until noontime, noontime, shouting, O Baal, answer us! But there was no reply of any kind. Then they danced, hobbling around the altar they had made. Verse 27. About noontime, Elijah began mocking them. You'll have to shout louder, he scoffed, for surely he is a god. Perhaps he is daydreaming or is relieving himself. Or maybe he is away on a trip or is asleep and needs to be awakened. So they shouted louder and following their normal custom, this is the key part, okay? And following their normal custom, they cut themselves with knives and swords until the blood gushed out. They raved all afternoon until the time of the evening sacrifice, but still there was no sound, no reply, no response. So, part of their religious practice was to cutting themselves. It had to do with worshiping Baal. That's why it was detestable to God. And remember in Leviticus, when Moses was giving the law of the Lord, um, Leviticus 19 verse 28 do not cut your bodies for the dead or put tattoo marks on yourselves. I am the Lord. Remember, we talked about that way back in Leviticus 19. I remember saying I don't like that verse because it could send the wrong message to people that have tattoos, right? That they're disobeying God's law by getting those tattoos. And so it was important to note that in the King James Version, it says, ye shall not make any cuttings in your flesh for the dead, nor print any marks upon you. I am the Lord. So it didn't at first use the word tattoo, um, but the tattoos they're referring to are marks made from scars, from cutting. Okay. If we today are reading Leviticus 19.28 and we think, oh my gosh, that's, that's not cool the way God feels about tattoos. Well, it doesn't mean tattoos like we think of it today. That's all I'm saying. So getting back to today's reading, let me read that again. Verse 14, they do not cry out to me with sincere hearts. Instead, they sit on their couches and wail. They cut themselves begging foreign gods for grain and new wine, and they turn away from me. So now the cutting themselves part makes a little more sense, right? That is something that God told them not to do because it was part of, of a Baal worship. And then verse 16, they look everywhere except the Most High. So when you take into consideration their idol worship, and we see 
by the way, in chapter 8, verse 4, they're making idols for themselves from their silver and gold. They have brought about their own destruction. Verse 5, O Samaria, I reject this calf, this idol you have made. My fury burns against you. So all of this is them putting their faith in these idol worship, in these false idols, in um, the cult practices of Baal worship. And they're cutting themselves and they're begging foreign gods for grain and new wine. So this is telling us that obviously these foreign gods are not providing for their needs, right? If they don't have grain and new wine and they're begging for these things, then they must be in a drought or some sort of season where they do not have the harvest that they're used to. And then, like I said before, chapter 8, now Israel pleads with me, help us for you are our God, but it is too late. Then we go to verse 7 in chapter 8. It says, they have planted the wind and will harvest the whirlwind. Well, that, there's a lot of talk in commentaries about that because that's a curious statement. And remember that God, when he speaks to his people in the Old Testament, but also when Jesus speaks to his people in the New Testament, that they use terms that the people understand. So this is an agricultural reference that, you know, if you plant grape seeds, you're going to get grapes, right? So in this case, it basically means you reap what you sow right? So they have planted the wind. So in this case, wind represents foolishness and great sin. Let me just read what I found on Got Questions about this. It's a proverb that uses an illustration gleaned from the agricultural process of sowing and reaping. A farmer would sow seeds, and of course the type of seed he planted would determine the type of plant that would grow. Makes sense. In Hosea 8, 7, God says that Israel had planted wind and would harvest a whirlwind. So if we take wind to mean something worthless and worthless and foolish, and it gives two examples from other scriptures. The first is Proverbs eleven twenty nine, It says, he who troubles his own house will inherit the wind and the fool will be a servant to the wise of heart. Another one is Ecclesiastes 1, 14. I have seen all the things that are done under the sun. All of them are meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Okay, so if wind is a reference to foolishness in this scenario, um, wind has other symbolic meanings as well. And we know that God himself has appeared and worked through his people through wind. So that's not the only meaning for wind. But in this case, wind is symbolizing the foolishness of the people. Okay, and... Their foolishness would result in a storm of consequence. Okay, so that's why it says you have planted the wind and you will harvest the whirlwind. You reap what you sow, basically. Okay, so Israel's idolatry and their foolish pursuit of false gods would reap a severe judgment from the Lord. That's all that means. Verse 13, the people of Israel love their rituals of sacrifice, but to me, their sacrifices are all meaningless. We've seen that before. God is rejecting their sacrifices because they're not doing it with the right heart. It doesn't mean anything because they are doing all the wrong things, all the things God told them not to do. They ignored his warnings. They are in desperate times, right? If they're crying out to these false gods, 
for grain and new wine, that means they're in desperate times and they're not remembering where they came from and who they serve and who the one true God is. So they're not turning to God. So remember, God will take it and he'll take it and he'll warn us and he'll warn us. And he's merciful and patient to a point, but there comes a point where it is too late. And that's where we're at here. Continuing in verse 13, I will hold my people accountable for their sins and I will punish them. I will punish them. They will return to Egypt. And then verse 14, Israel has forgotten its maker and built great palaces and Judah has fortified its cities. Therefore, I will send down fire on their cities and will burn up their fortresses. That's just saying they've become proud. God is not punishing them because they built up their cities and built great palaces. He's punishing them for their pride. Now, I am going to read more from Got Questions when it talks about prophetically, if you back up to verse 7 when we talked about they have planted the wind and will harvest the whirlwind. When it says they have harvested they and will harvest the whirlwind, that's prophetic. And it's just a literary way of saying that Assyria, which is the whirlwind, that's what's going to come upon them. Okay, um, here's what it says. The whirlwind came upon Israel in 722 B.C., when Assyria invaded Israel, destroyed the capital city of Samaria, and deported the Israelites. Yet Hosea 14.4 promised future grace. So this just gives us a little glimmer of hope. Because I hate to end on this wrath of God note. He says, I will heal their apostasy, which means the abandonment or renunciation of a religious or political belief. I will love them freely, for my anger has turned from them. A whirlwind does not last forever, and God's judgment would not be unending. God would later renew the relationship between him and his people. And then I want to close with this final paragraph from Got Questions, because this puts a bow on it and lets us know how, this, how to apply this truth to our lives today. It says, today we can see the truth of Hosea's proverb in many ways. Those who live in unrepentant sin can expect to suffer the consequences of their sin. We reap what we sow. Consequences that both fit the crime and exhibit a stunning intensity. Also, this statement by Hosea is a clarion call to avoid idolatry. Anything that steals our trust in the Lord lessens our devotion to him or controls us, can be considered an idol and should be abolished from our lives. So, yeah, no to self. Eliminate the idols in our lives. Okay, that's really it for today. Um, I think it's pretty self-explanatory. The takeaway is to eliminate the idols in our lives. Um, and know that we, we will reap what we sow. And that we shouldn't put our faith in the wrong things. We have to put our faith always, always in the one true God. And know that he has our best interests at heart. So even though we don't understand what's going on in our lives, and it seems like a mess, and we don't know how he could possibly bring good from this, he can, and he does, and we have to trust that. So that's it for today. I hope you all have a great day. I will talk to you soon.